0: What do you give to a person who has everything? A place to put it. And that was the old line. I can recall when I graduated from college, I could fit all of my worldly possessions in the back of my Ford Escort. (laughs) And now I have so much stuff that not only is the house full, but the garage is so full that I cannot put my car in the garage. The irony is not lost on me. It's not... Bad to own stuff. The problem is when the stuff owns you. In Numbers 32, we are going to see a people who had been blessed by God with stuff, but the stuff was causing them to look away from the Lord's promises to the stuff. Before we read God's word, let's go before him as the author. Let's pray together. Lord, as we have worshiped in song, we now worship in study. Grateful for the opportunity for your word to be read, to be proclaimed. We pray then for your Holy Spirit to come now to condescend and to bear witness to the reading and preaching of your word that we might leave this place different than we came because of your condescending grace, because of your presence with us by your word. And so, as always, we pray for the preacher, knowing that he is not worthy, but by your grace, he is able. And so it is through Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. Well, Numbers 32 recounts a three-part conversation between Moses and the two tribes of Reuben and Gad. We're going to hear this whole thing as one account. There's three movements to it. See if you can... Pick up on those as we go along, but let's hear the whole thing as one account together. This is God's Word from Numbers chapter 32. The Reubenites and Gadites, who had very large herds and flocks, saw that the lands of Jazer and Gilead were suitable for livestock. So they came to Moses and Eleazar the priest and to the leaders of the community and said, Haderoth, Dibon, Jazer, Nimrah, Heshbon, Elia, Seba, and Nebo, and Beon, The land the Lord subdued before the people of Israel are suitable for livestock, and your servants have livestock. If we have found favor in your eyes, they said, let this land be given to your servants as our possession. Do not make us cross the Jordan. Moses said to the Gadites and Reubenites, Shall your countrymen go to war while you sit here? Why do you discourage the Israelites from going over into the land the Lord has given them? This is what your fathers did. When I sent them from Kadesh Barnea to look over the land, after they went up to the valley of Eshcol and viewed the land, they discouraged the Israelites from entering the land the Lord had given them. The Lord's anger was aroused that day, and he swore this oath. Because they have not followed me wholeheartedly, not one of the men 20 years old or more who came up out of Egypt will see the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not one except Caleb son of Jephunneh the Kenizzite and Joshua son of Nun, for they followed the Lord wholeheartedly. The Lord's anger burned against Israel and he made them wander in the desert 40 years until the whole generation of those who had done evil in his sight was gone. And here you are, a brood of sinners, standing in the place of your fathers and making the Lord even more angry with Israel. If you turn away from following him, he will again leave all this people in the desert, and you will be the cause of their destruction. Then they came up to him and said, We would like to build pens here for our livestock and cities for our women and children but we are ready to arm ourselves and go ahead of the Israelites until we have brought them to their place. Meanwhile, our women and children will live in fortified cities for protection from the inhabitants of the land. We will not return to our homes until every Israelite has received his inheritance. We will not receive any inheritance with them on the other side of the Jordan because our inheritance has come to us on the east side of the Jordan. Then Moses said to them, If you will do this, if you will arm yourselves before the Lord for battle, and if all you will go—sorry, if all of you will go armed over the Jordan before the Lord until He has driven His enemies out before Him, then when the land is subdued before the Lord, you may return and be free from your obligation to the Lord and to Israel. And this land will be your possession before the Lord. But if you fail to do this, you will be sinning against the Lord. And you may be sure that your sin will find you out. Build cities for your women and children and pens for your flocks, but do what you have promised. The Gadites and Reubenites said to Moses, we, your servants, will do as our Lord commands. Our children and wives, our flocks and herds will remain here in the cities of Gilead, but your servants, every man armed for battle, will cross over to fight before the Lord, just as our Lord says. Then Moses gave orders about them to Eleazar the priest and Joshua son of Nun and to the family heads of the Israelite tribes. He said to them, If the Gadites and Reubenites, every man armed for battle, cross over the Jordan with you before the Lord, then when the land is subdued before you, give them the land of Gilead as their possession. But if they do not cross over with you armed, they must accept their possession with you in Canaan. The Gadites... And Reubenites answered, your servants will do what the Lord has said. We will cross over before the Lord into Canaan armed, but the property we inherit will be on this side of the Jordan. Then Moses gave to the Gadites, the Reubenites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, son of Joseph, the kingdom of Sihon, king of the Amorites, and the kingdom of Og, king of Bashan, the whole land with its cities and the territory around them. The Gadites built up Dibon, Adaroth, Auror, Adoth, Sofan, Jazer, Jogaba, Beth Nimra, and Beth Haran as fortified cities, and built pens for their flocks. And the Reubenites rebuilt Heshbon, Elela, and Kiriathaiam, as well as Nebo and Baal meon These names were changed. And Sidma, they gave names to the cities they rebuilt. The descendants of Machir, son of Manasseh, went to Gilead, captured it, and drove out the Amorites, who were there. So Moses gave Gilead to the Machirites, the descendants of Manasseh, and they settled there. Jair, a descendant of Manasseh, captured their settlements and called them Havoth Jair. And Nobah captured Kenneth and its surrounding settlements and called it Nobah after himself. Let's notice again these three movements in this conversation. There is a rebellious request and response, and then a reconsidered request and response, and then an agreement and allotment. And so the first 15 verses recount this rebellious request and response. And at first it doesn't sound rebellious. At first it simply sounds logical. The Reubenites and Gadites who had very large herds and flocks, saw that the lands of Jazer and Gilead were suitable for livestock. It's where they're standing. It's where they are right now. They've seen this land, they're in this land, and they say, this land looks just right for us. And so the tribes of Reuben and Gad, and later in verse 33 we learn the half-tribe of Manasseh was also in this, asked that this land be given to them. So what's the problem? Well, the land that they want is the territory called the Trans Jordan across the Jordan, away from the promised land. The promised land is right over there. You can see it across the Jordan. And Israel's about to cross the Jordan together in order to take this land that God has promised, promised it to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He's promised it to them over 400 years and then the past 40 years. It's right there. And here comes Gad and Reuben saying, "Now we're good. We're just good right here. We'll just stay right here. And why? Because they think they already have everything and just need a place to put it. The early Christian commentators compared these tribes' preference for material prosperity over living in the promised land to those who gave similar excuses for ignoring Christ's call in the gospel accounts. Earlier in the service, we read the gospel account from Matthew of the rich young ruler, Who could not serve Christ because he served his wealth? His possessions possessed him. John Calvin saw in this, this enlargement of the Israelite territory, as an example of God's providence bringing good out of human sin. But any way you slice it, this is still a sinful request. It ignores the promise of God and settles for something other than God's promises. Such is still the great temptation for the church today. We may be tempted individually or collectively to seek satisfaction in human prosperity rather than divine promises. We seek satisfaction in human prosperity rather than in divine promises. C.S. Lewis wrote, We are half hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because we cannot understand what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. What do you give to the person who has everything? A place to put it. But do they have everything? No. They don't even have what matters most. They have prosperity and a place to put their prosperity, but their focus is on the stuff and not on the Lord. And sure enough, for the next several hundred years, the Moabites and Amorites and Ammonites and Aram were a constant threat to them. And eventually, Assyria will conquer Israel from the east. The Transjordan land is east of the Jordan. It's east of the Promised Land. Fine, you want to live outside the promise? You want to live outside the covenants? You may have moments of prosperity, but you don't have what matters most. And so Moses responds with appropriate anger, a righteous anger in verse six. Shall your countrymen go to war while you sit here? Why do you discourage the Israelites from going over into the land the Lord has given them? This is what your fathers did when I sent them from Kadesh Barnea to look over the land. Moses is referring to the events that are recorded in chapters 13 and 14 when 12 men went to spy on Canaan. Ten were bad and two were good. The ten came back in fear, and they spread a bad report such that Israel was discouraged. The people rebelled. And that rebellion in Kadesh was the reason that Israel spent 40 years in the wilderness. That rebellion is the reason why the first generation died in the desert. The first generation did not trust God's promises because they feared the people of Canaan. Now, these two tribes don't trust God's promises because they seek satisfaction in human prosperity rather than in divine promises. It was the Puritan pastor Thomas Brooks who wrote Adversity has slain its thousands. Prosperity has slain its tens of thousands. And so the problem here is not just for the tribes of Gad and Reuben. They are in danger themselves for settling for something other than God's promises. But their attitude and action would discourage the rest of Israel from moving forward. Let's all just settle right here. The church of Jesus Christ is always in danger of settling. If things are going well, we might simply want to stay the course. Let's just keep doing things the way we've always done it. And if things are not going well, we might simply long for the way things once were, with rose-colored glasses, recalling past programs and practices and people and want those things back. Faithfulness to God never settles, and it does not seek its own way. Faithfulness to God is seen in the church moving forward together, and serving the Lord together. Now, there's a break between verses 15 and 16, a time to reflect on what Moses said. And then verse 16 shows Gad and Reuben coming back with a reconsidered request and response. In verse 16, the tribes come back to Moses, Eleazar, and the leaders with this reconsidered request. We would like to build pens here for our livestock, and cities for our women and children, but we are ready to arm ourselves and go ahead of the Israelites until we have brought them to their place. Now, on the positive side, it is important to note that they at least took time to listen to what Moses had said, and it's reflected in their response. They will not simply abandon Israel. They will protect their women and their children and their possessions, and they will fight with Israel. But on the negative side, what is translated as go ahead of the Israelites is a word that more literally means to hurry. And so the sense is that they want to hurry through this anticipated war, presuming on the Lord to bring swift victory. They want to hurry out in front, winning the victory, so they can hurry on back to be in this land outside the promise. And they also continually refer to the promised land not as our place, but their place. We will arm ourselves to help them have their place. They will be over there. We will be over here in our inheritance. Us and them are always words of division, not unity. It's important to remember whenever words cross our lips about those people, whoever those people happen to be. We serve with our church family. We serve with and for people in our community. This is our country. We are to go and make disciples of nations because the Lord is calling people from every nation, tribe and tongue to be his people. And so the tribes of Gad and Reuben are essentially saying, they will cross over the Jordan to fight, but then return to the Transjordan for their land as their inheritance. And it's important to note that the nation of Israel never fully owned all the land that had been given to them, because there was always pockets of rebellion and unfaithfulness happening somewhere. So why do we ever receive the fullness of God's promises? Because they are not dependent upon us. They're not dependent upon our faithfulness, but upon the perfect faithfulness Of Jesus Christ. By the same token, there is a measure in which we do not receive certain promises yet because of our faithlessness. When we neglect the means of grace, we cannot expect to receive God's promises. When we allow ourselves to remain in unrepentance, we cannot expect to receive God's promises. Those who are truly in Christ will ultimately receive God's promises because of Christ's faithfulness. Those who are truly in Christ will seek out the means of grace, will walk in faith and repentance. And it should concern us when we don't, or when we see brothers and sisters who don't. This is why we hear Moses' conditional response in verses 20 to 24, where he says, if you will arm yourselves before the Lord for battle, then this land will be your possession." Verse 23, but if you fail to do this, you will be sinning against the Lord and you may be sure that your sin will find you out. It's good for us to meditate on that for a moment with Christ-centered gospel language. If you are truly in Christ, then there is no condemnation. There is abundant life and eternal life. But if it turns out that you are not truly in Christ, then your sin will find you out. You cannot lose your salvation because your salvation isn't in your hands. Your salvation is fully accomplished by the person and work of Jesus Christ. And if you have placed your faith solely in the person and work of Christ so that you are saved sola fide, by faith alone, then you will cling to Christ all of your days. But if you call yourself a Christian because you grew up in a Christian home, or because you once had a spiritual experience, or you once made a profession, or because you know some Christian doctrine, but you are not walking with the Lord in repentance and faith, then your sin will find you out. Failure to repent cannot cause you to lose your salvation, but may indicate you were never truly saved in the first place. You know, we hear it so often in society that we have accepted it as true. Who are you to judge? We're supposed to judge. In loving concern for the state of people's souls, how can I say that I truly care for someone if I don't care that they are headed for eternal judgment? Now, I say that, but also important to say there's a huge difference in loving judging as opposed to being judgmental or just being mean, or filled with hatred, or mental health issues, a shooting that happens down in Pittsburgh is not loving concern. We saw a couple weeks ago, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. We are to love our neighbors and even love our enemies. And there's a difference in judging those outside the church and those inside the church. In the words of the Apostle Paul to the Corinthian church regarding the church member who is living in gross, unrepentant sin, Paul says, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside, expel the wicked man from among you. We are to judge those inside the church as part of loving church discipline with tears in our eyes, concern for the state of the souls of our Christian brothers and sisters. And there is a formal process in which that sort of judging takes place. And that takes us to this third part of the conversation of agreement and allotment. Verses 25 through 27 record the Gadites and Reubenites agreeing with Moses' conditional response. And notice, by the way, that the Gadites are listed first throughout the rest of this chapter, which suggests they were really the ones driving this whole thing. Reubenites were listed first in chapter 1 because Reuben is the oldest son, and so usually gives, is given that seniority position in lists. And up to this point, there has simply been a conversation happening. But in verse 28, it moves from an informal conversation to a formal declaration. Verse 28 then Moses gave orders about them to Eleazar the priest, Joshua son of Nun, and to the family heads of the Israelite tribes. Moses formally communicates the terms and conditions of the agreement to the second generation leadership. Verses 31 to 32 tell us that the Gadites and Reubenites affirm the agreement formally in the presence of that leadership. In our terminology, we would say it was properly moved, seconded, carried it in the session meeting or the presbytery meeting. This wasn't just an informal agreement between Moses and the tribes. It was a formal agreement among the representative leaders of the people. I say that because it's tempting for us to think of formality as a negative thing. In fact, we even use the frame, that's just a formality. Red tape, paperwork, meetings, working out official language. Certainly, there are times when formality can be too formal, but on the whole, there is a proper solemnity to making a formal official declaration. One of my favorite parts of a wedding service is right at the end when I get to say, therefore, by the authority committed unto me as a minister of Jesus Christ, according to the ordinance of God and the law of this commonwealth, I declare that this man and this woman are now husband and wife. I get to declare formally that two people are now married. On a regular basis in session meetings, after a motion is made and seconded and discussed and approved, I get to say, so ordered. It's now official. Now some of those things are rather boring like approving minutes to meetings. Some of those things are sad, removing members who have neglected their vows. But many times the formal declaration affirms hard work done by committees and members who have diligently discerned a ministry initiative. And of course, everyone loves the formal declaration. The meeting is now adjourned. Verses 33 to 42 are the most boring part of the passage for us. Listing the land allotments, a bunch of names and places that mean nothing to us, but meant everything to Israel. Verse 33 is something for us to note. Then Moses gave to the Gadites, the Reubenites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, son of Joseph, the kingdom of Sihon, king of the Amorites, and the kingdom of Og, king of Bashan, the whole land with its cities and the territory around them. First, this tells us that the half-tribe of Manasseh was involved in the whole thing too. And more importantly, we recall how they got this land in the first place. Chapter 21 recounts how Israel had simply asked King Sihon and Og for permission to pass through their land. They were just going to pass through the land on their way to the promised land. Israel had no plans to fight Sihon and Og or to obtain their land. They were just going to pass through. But Sihon and Og not only refused to let them pass through, but they unnecessarily attack Israel and were subsequently defeated because God's hand was with Israel. And so Israel unexpectedly took possession of this land of the Amorites. There are promises that God has made to us, things that we know we will receive. Along the way, there may be unexpected battles that may also end up as unexpected blessings. God's people don't need to pick a fight. Attacks will always arise. We simply put on the spiritual armor of God, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, feet fitted with readiness from the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. The Lord will win the victories in order to accomplish all of his promises. What do you give to a person who has everything? You give them to Jesus Christ. Do not seek satisfaction in human prosperity, but in divine promises. Sealed in Christ, who is the truth that sets us free. Amen.